we are here the next four weeks to really just intentionally lock our eyes in on the birth of Jesus Christ and just kind of really, really get our eyes and our minds focused on why Jesus came, what he accomplished, and why this is such a unique time of year. You know, I grew up, Carl mentioned it I as well, but I grew up in a, in a non-liturgical church. And so the word Advent to me sounded like, I didn't know what it was. I was just like, what is Advent, you know? And I thought, man, this is really weird that people are doing Advent stuff. Like, what is Advent, Advent? It was just kind of weird for me to hear. But the word Advent simply means the arrival of a notable person, a notable thing, or a notable event. And so when we talk, when we use the word Advent here, that's what we're talking about. It was the arrival of a notable person who did a notable thing uh, on a day in history that became a notable event, and that is Jesus Christ came and died for your sins and rose again. That's the message. That's what we celebrate, really. And, and he came through a normal birth. And so we're going to look at the next four weeks, something, a, a series that I've entitled The Backstory. And each week, we want to uh, look at some verses as it relates to the candle that we're lighting. Just remember, we're lighting candles not because we feel like that's uh, going to affect anybody's salvation or, or get you closer to God. It's just a, it's designed to be a remembrance. That's what it is. It's a memorial of sorts, remembering this one aspect of this story. And, and this morning, we're looking at fulfilled prophecy. And, you know, one of the things about prophecy is it can be used a couple different ways, but we're talking specifically about the kind of prophecy where, where somebody foretold the future. That's, that's incredible. That's typically what we think of when we think of prophecy, but that's specifically what we want to focus on this morning. And it's interesting because this candle, although oftentimes called the prophecy candle, is oftentimes called the candle of hope. And it's interesting because when we use hope, in our modern vernacular, we, we kind of use it like a wish, like, oh, I hope this happens. I, I wish this happened. I'm not sure, but I'm, you know, I'm crossing my fingers. Biblical hope is always confident expectation. And it's, it's just such a beautiful melding of what we're talking about because biblical prophecy predicts the future. And our response to biblical fr- prophecy is we are confident that it's going to happen because God does what he says he's going to do. God actually makes it happen. And so it's nice how those two uh, come together. And so this morning, we're going to look at a couple of prophecies found in Isaiah. In fact, uh, Matteo read those for us a few minutes ago. But before we do, we want to set the backdrop for these prophecies. The, the prophecies themselves are incredible. But when you consider the backdrop and the backstory that gets us to those prophecies, it becomes mind-blowing. And I know for many of us, we know this story. We, we've heard this story. We, we've heard it every year. But I just ask you and encourage you to, to try to look at it through fresh eyes this morning. Allow the Lord to overwhelm you with a sense of awe and, and wonder in terms of what he accomplished that first Christmas day when our Lord was born in a stable. And, you know, I want to look at it this way. You know, uh, I used to recruit engineers. And so sometimes I think in terms of images, but everyone knows what a pipeline is. Everyone knows what a pipeline is. And typically they always talk in terms of pipelines, you know, what you, you stuff something in it and then, and then something comes out the other side, right? And the more you stuff in, 
it, it keeps a flow going through the pipeline, right? And when it's oil, that's a good thing. You, you want oil to continue to come through that pipeline because that means you're making lots of money. But the Christmas story, we typically look at the back end of the pipeline. We typically look at the birth of Jesus Christ. We typically focus there. And so before we get there this morning, I'm going to look at the front end of the pipeline. And I want to look at some prophecies that lead us to the two that I want to cover this morning. And the original backdrop is found all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. This is where the prophecies in Isaiah came from. And so in Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to move through this pretty quickly here, but what we find is the worst mistake in human history. Committed by our forefathers, Adam and Eve, when they took of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And following that mistake, God did something miraculous. He did something immediate. And what he did is he communicated to mankind that he had a plan for a solution. Now, he, he didn't hold it back. He didn't say, well, let me see you behave for a little while. He immediately communicates, I've got a solution for the mistake you just made. I have a solution for the problem you just created, and I'm going to provide the solution. And we find that recorded in Genesis 3.15. Let's read it just to familiarize ourselves with it. Many of you are familiar with it already, I'm sure. But Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And you know, ultimately, this is what prophecy is about. God communicating something to mankind so that mankind can respond accordingly. God desires to communicate. And you know what? If God says he has a solution, it would be foolish for Adam and Eve to try to find their own solution. You know, and the same is true of eternal life. You know, many people are trying to be good enough to go to heaven, work their way to go to heaven, trying to be religious enough to go to heaven. And and that's not the solution to going to heaven. That's not the answer. In fact, the Bible says that we're saved by grace. That's God providing a solution for something you could not provide the solution for. And that's found, obviously, in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But God says, I've got a solution. It would behoove mankind to say, okay, what is the solution? I'm going that way. I'm trusting what you came up with as a solution. And so ultimately, he communicates this. He says, you know what? You've made the mistake. I've got the solution. And you know, the thing about God is he's a gentleman. You've probably heard that said. But he doesn't force anybody to to choose his solution. But, But what he does is this. He goes out of his way to communicate the solution multiple different ways over many, many years. And also he validates what he predicts. He verifies what he is saying is going to come true. And then he himself accomplishes what he says he's going to do. And all along the way, he's trying to convince people, you can trust me. You can trust my solution. This is what I'm going to do now. This is how I'm going to answer this question. This is what I'm going to do. And he puts it all together for us, not as a a distant person that's like, yeah, I I hope you can figure it out. Good luck. Like, Like God didn't just like give a riddle and then sit back and just laugh while everyone's trying to figure out his riddle. No, he communicated this, the solution in no uncertain terms. And you're sitting there and if, if you're looking at Genesis 3.15, you're like, what in the world does that mean? 
You think like, man, this is like Nostradamus. I mean, that could go, you know, 400 different ways. But that's the great thing about the Bible. That's the great thing about progressive revelation because what he does is now he's gonna take Genesis 3.15 and throughout the Old Testament, he's just gonna fill in more details. He's gonna, he's gonna narrow this down for us so that it's specific enough that people can recognize it. This is the very first prophecy ever given and it's in direct response to the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. And in summary form, this is what we learn. We, we'll zip through this. But the first thing we see is that a physical descendant of the woman. Notice that just the woman is mentioned here. Go back to verse 15. That third phrase, between your seed and what? Her seed. Not their seed. Not Adam and Eve. Her seed. It's, he's, he's uniquely identifying just the woman, but this physical descent of the woman is going to destroy the serpent. Now, if you've read in the Bible, and I know these are the sections we usually skip over, right? The genealogies. You're like, oh man, I saved my Bible reading for today because it had, it all had genealogies in it. So I'm just going to skip through that. I'll take today off, right? But if you notice in the genealogies, what does it typically say? This dude, it's always a guy, begot this person. And then this guy begot this person, and this guy begot this. And genealogy is always traced through the man. You see that. You notice that in the Bible. This is what's so unique about Genesis 3.15. It wasn't like God came up with the virgin birth like later in Isaiah. Oh, yeah, I should do that. I should pull off that virgin birth thing because that would really convince. No, God knew what he was going to do all the way back in Genesis 3.15. You can see it in the wording. This is unique. This is one of the points that we pull up from Genesis 3.15. The second thing we learn is that the, the serpent would in some way harm the physical descendant of the woman. But we also see that the physical descendant would ultimately triumph, delivering a death blow to the serpent's head. We pick all of that up from Genesis 3.15. This is the beginning. This is the the, the first prophecy in the Bible. And what we're going to find is that much of the prophecy that follows in the Bible fills in the details of this prophecy. That's what's so incredible by the time we get to Isaiah and the passages we're going to look at this morning is because it ties directly back to Genesis 3.15. God is in the business of communicating what he's doing. God is in the, is in the business of trying and attempting to persuade mankind to trust in him for a solution. And so he's doing this through communication. And so you can imagine the questions that may have arisen when this prophecy was given. In fact, probably more than 20 questions, but here's a, here's a list. How about this? When's this going to happen, God? You look at the way Eve kind of thinks. She, she gives birth to a, to a son named Cain, and the way, the way it's verbalized in the Hebrew, it's almost like God's given me the man. And I think Eve thinks... Cain's the guy. Cain's, Cain's the one that's going to take care of this serpent. Cain is, is the man that God prophesied about. Now, she was obviously wrong about Cain. He, he kind of went the opposite direction. <laughs> but, but you can see even then there's some anticipation that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. They just didn't know when. When, was this, when would this happen? Where will it happen? Who will it be? How can we tell for sure? How are we going to be able to identify the right physical descendant. When is this going to happen? What time frame? I mean, all these questions would come out. What does it mean he's going to crush the serpent's head? This guy just going to walk around stepping on snakes? I mean, is that, 
Is that what he's talking about? What, what does this mean? What's, what's behind this imagery? How, how's the serpent going to bruise his heel? What is that going to look like? Why is only the woman mentioned? Why is this important? Why is that even important that the woman is mentioned? And so God's going to take these questions. He's going to start filling in the blanks. Let's look at a couple of the fill in the blanks, the fill in the details. When will this happen? Well, turn with me to Daniel 9. Daniel chapter 9. Let's give you a couple of indicators. We don't have time to develop all these in detail this morning, but you're going to see that God is a communicator, that he's filling in the details of this original prophecy in Genesis 3.15. Daniel 9 verse 24. Let's just start there and we'll get to 25. Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And so you can take that math, those those 69 sevens, which we understand to be years, 69 seven units of years, basically 483 years from the time this command goes out to rebuild Jerusalem till the time of Messiah. So there was a definite time frame, a definite answer to the when. In fact, as we do the math, Harold Honer, a former professor at Dallas Seminary, actually did the math and it comes down exactly to Good Friday. It's incredible. The, the, the level of accuracy that is found in biblical prophecy. And, and if you like math, that's a great equation to look at. I mean, he, he puts it together. It's a little technical. But if you're interested in that, let me know. I'd be happy to, to get you a copy. But, it, but, but God is in the business of filling in these details. Notice also Malachi chapter 3 tells us that, that the Messiah would have to come while there was still a temple. That also gives us an indicator. It had to happen before AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. But look at, uh, look at Malachi Three one, he says, "Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming," says the Lord of hosts. And so we see that's very important in terms of giving us a time frame. What about the where question? Well, Micah five two, which we'll cover uh, here in, a, in in one of the sermons here in this series. Micah five two tells us what. Well, the, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Gives us the where, right? He's, God is going through answering the five W's and the one H, right? We, we learned that in school. We learned that in Bible study. We learned to ask those questions. These are the questions that he's filling in the details. What about the who? Well, who's the serpent? What? Are we, are we really just anti-snake? And I heard some people mutter, amen. I mean, I... I get it, but we're not talking about snakes. Who is the serpent in the Garden of Eden? Ironically enough, we know who he is, but how do we know? We don't actually find out technically, officially in the word of God until we get to Revelation 12, 9 that identifies him, Satan, as the serpent of old, this one that was in the Garden of Eden. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we, something we know, but we actually don't find out about it until Revelation chapter 12 
verse 9. So we know who the serpent is. How about the physical descendant? How about the seed of the woman? How about the, the, the one who's going to crush the serpent's head? How do we find out who he is? How do we know his identity? How can we validate him over any other imposters? You know, that family trees typically go one way, don't they? Out. I mean, it gets, it gets more complex the more generations pass. And so how would we know? Well, God started doing things in the word of God. He, he started recording this lineage. First of all, he identifies Abraham, that the seed, that Abraham's seed would, would one day bless the entire world since Genesis 12, 3 and the Abrahamic covenant. So he's got to be of Abraham's lineage. And we go down the line, he's got to be of Isaac's lineage. He's got to be of Jacob's line. Well, Jacob had 12 sons. Now where do we go? Well, he's got to be of Judah's line. You can see the references. And we, we jump down. He's got to be of Jesse's line. And then he's got to be of David's lineage. We find that in the Davidic covenant found in 2 Samuel. And then we find out that he's got to be of Solomon's line. And not just Solomon's line, but he can't go through the lineage of Coniah because his lineage is cursed. So you've got all these ways that God is narrowing down the, the funnel, so to speak. It was, it was wide out here, right? The seed of a woman. Well, that's, I mean, that could be anybody. But then he starts narrowing it down for us in the word of God, filling in these details. And you know what's so ironic about this particular detail? And you say, well, how do we know that's accurate? I mean, you know, David, I mean, once you get past David and Solomon, how do you know who's who? Because it doesn't really identify. Well, what's really fascinating about it is during Jesus's lifetime, the Pharisees were, were against Jesus on many fronts, but you know, one objection they never brought up that he didn't have the right lineage. Never brought it up. You know why? Because he had the right lineage. He had the right lineage to be the Messiah. How would they know? Well, in those days, they had records in the temple that dated back that they could verify and change. Now, when the temple was destroyed in AD 70, those records were lost, unfortunately, to history. But we see from the, the record of the gospels, we see from the record of histories, there was never a Pharisee that said, you know what? This guy can't be the Messiah because he doesn't even have the right lineage because he had the right lineage. They could have verified. In fact, that was probably the first thing they checked because they could just disqualify him right out of the chute, but they couldn't do it because he had the right lineage. And God took great care to communicate and fill in those details of the who and his identity. You know what else we see in the life of Jesus Christ? We see confirmed and verifiable miracles. In fact, Matthew, let's, let's turn there. Matthew 11, uh, verses two through five, described to us, and let's, let's get there, Matthew 11, two through five. In fact, yeah, yeah, we'll start in verse two. When John, this is John the Baptist, had heard in prison, John, John had been thrown into prison, but when he had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look for another? In other words, can you identify yourself? And, and I think part of the confusion that was going on in the mind of John, you remember what John's message was? It was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the mind of the Jew was, hey, the king is here. He's going to establish the kingdom and then all will be made right in the world. If that's true, why am I in prison? <laughs> why, 
Why is my life being threatened? This is, I think, what's going on in John. He's like, I thought it was Jesus. I'm pretty convinced it was Jesus, but this isn't matching up with my understanding of theology. I thought the kingdom was supposed to be coming in and everything. Would be. So, so he's, he's asking the question. I think he kind of knows the answer, but he's a little confused as to the events. And so he says, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, I want you to notice what Jesus says and how he answers in verse four. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, why is this significant? Well, because that's what was prophesied about in the Old Testament that the Messiah would do. This is one way that God confirmed and verified that Jesus was indeed this promise deliverer, all the way promised back in Genesis 3.15. So he did it through lineage. He did it through confirmed and verifiable miracles. Even in Peter's sermon after Jesus raises from the dead and ascends to heaven, he points to a group of, uh, of enemies, really, people that had crucified Christ. He says, look, we know we did undeniable miracles. And they weren't like, whoa, whoa wait a minute. We're not sure about that. You know, we're not, I don't know about that. I don't know. We're not sure. Nobody objected. They're like, man, he did. <laughs> He did. And Peter just puts that forward as, as a proof to verify his identity. And so you see God filling in the details on the who. Then he fills in the details on the what. What will the physical descendant do to crush the head of the serpent? What's he going to do? Well, interestingly enough, go with me to Zechariah 12.10. Fascinating passage in the Old Testament. Because Zechariah 12. 10 tells us the Messiah is going to die in a certain way. He's going to die in a certain way, and it's through being pierced. Look at Zechariah 12, 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Notice this next phrase. Then they will look at me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. See, he was going to be pierced. By the way, the Romans, when this was written, the Romans weren't even in power yet. The, the whole execution method of crucifixion hadn't even been invented yet when this prophecy was made. You see how, how clearly God wants to communicate? You see how clearly as they're watching Jesus be crucified on the cross and they watch the nails go through his hands and through his feet, how they might have said, wow, that's Zechariah 12.10. Wow, that's Psalm 22, which also describes this. You see, God wants to communicate. He wants to convince us. He wants to persuade us that what he said he will do, he will accomplish. And he's giving these details, filling it in. Turn with me to Hebrews 2, 14. We get even more insight into what crushing the serpent's head looks like. Again, the serpent being identified as Satan, but Hebrews 2, 14 it says this, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might do what? Destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. How's this promise deliver going to crush the serpent's head? Through his own death. You see, God, 
God puts this together for us. I mean, he, he fills in this details. Now, why? Filling in the details. Why is only the woman mentioned in Genesis 3.15? Why is that significant? Because this deliverer would have a unique virgin birth. This is one of the verses we're going to look at this morning. He's only biologically related to his mother. Why would God do that? Because the sin uh, nature seems to, based on this, transfer through the father. That's not to say that women don't have a sin nature. Um, They do. But in terms of how God was going to pull this off, a perfect sacrifice that was born to a human mother, how would he pull that off when he does that through the virgin birth? What about how? How will we be able to recognize the one? And here's the answer. Through all of fulfilled prophecy, making this man the most unique in all of human history. Jesus is the most unique person to ever walk the face of the earth because of who he was and and what he was sent to do. You know, we have in the Bible an array of prophecies and, and you could, we don't even have time to cover them all this morning. They cover hundreds of years, hundreds. If we go back to Genesis 3.15, thousands of years, and yet they find their complete fulfillment in the short 30-year lifespan of Jesus Christ. That's why he's so unique. This is why he's so special. In fact, many of these were filled in one day. Many of these prophecies were fulfilled in one 24-hour day in the life of one man. This is what's so incredible. There's, uh, I'm going to put out this, this week on social media a list of 25 fulfilled prophecies that happened in the life of Jesus Christ in his last 24 hours uh, prior to his death. Just incredible the way these things come together and where God puts this together. And so I, I wanted to give you that backstory to get into the prophecies that we want to look at this morning. And those are found in Isaiah. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. We want to look at a unique birth this morning. Let's provide some context to Isaiah chapter 7. A lot of names here. Sorry about that, but it kind of helps us get to understand what's going on. King Ahaz, uh, roughly 700 B.C., king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Remember Israel following uh, the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom of Israel, a southern kingdom of Judah. And so Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah during this time. And what we find out from from this passage is the northern kingdom, their their relatives, uh, had teamed up with Syria to overthrow them. So they had teamed up with another strong army to overthrow them. The reason we find out in history is because Ahaz, those two kingdoms had come to him and said, hey, if you form a a trio with us, we think we can take down the Assyrians. And Ahaz said, no, 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 I don't want want a part of that. They said, all right, since you don't want a part of it, we're going to destroy you. The two of us are going to come against you. And so you can see from the context in chapter 7, because of this enemy alliance, he was troubled. Ahaz was, was fearful, and the people were afraid. This was, they were outnumbered. They were outgunned, so to speak. And so he's a little concerned about this. Verse, verse 1, now it came to pass in the day of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, so his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. 
Another way you could say shaking in his boots, right? He's, he's fearful, okay? So we, we see his mental state. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz, and he sends him with a prophetic word. It's a word of encouragement that, that the armies and him are going to be delivered by God, that they, that they don't have anything to worry about this alliance coming against them. They're not going to harm him. And so um, basically Isaiah is going to say, you know what, just trust in the Lord. Don't, don't try to go make more alliances. You know, that's what Israel always did during the times of the prophets. They, they saw Egypt. They saw their shiny chariots. They saw horses. They saw the weapons of war of that day. And they said, oh, we got we to gotta get those guys on our team. And it was like, you know, you got the Michael Jordan of war on your team. You know, the God of the universe, Yahweh. You don't need anybody else. You got him. And yet they constantly would not trust it. So the prophet Isaiah is sent to encourage Ahaz. And not only that, God was willing to give him a sign and let him pick it. I mean, who wouldn't want that opportunity? That'd be kind of fun, right? Lord, take Grace Community Fellowship and pick it up and move it back five feet and then move it back to where it was. I'd be like, man, this is incredible, right? You pick a sign, Ahaz, pick anything you want. And this is where Ahaz gets carnal religious on him. Oh, I'm not going to tempt God. Whatever, man. I mean, you're, you're already carnal. You're not even already walking with the Lord. So, so God says, you know what? You won't pick a sign. I'm going to pick one for you. And that's what we pick up in Isaiah 7, 14. And he predicts this unique birth. In fact, Isaiah 7, 14 says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, interesting, interesting verse, uh, interesting verse. In fact, you may or may not be aware, but this is, there's been debate uh, over this word virgin in, in many different circles. Many people who would criticize biblical critics would say that that word doesn't mean virgin in the way that we think of it. It just means a young woman. Some of you may have heard those things, um, whereas we believe it, it means a, a virgin birth. And so there's some debate about uh, this word here. You know, as it stands today, and this, this number it seems to go down every year, but 66% of Americans, according to the latest statistics, still believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That kind of blows me away. I thought it would be much lower. I thought it would be under 50%, but today as it stands, 66, that's what the latest numbers tell us. But there are critics out there that will really come in on this verse. And that's why I want to spend a little bit of time on it um, during this Christmas season. The Hebrew word translated virgin here is the, the word Alma. Okay. And Alma, just the generic word means young, young woman or maiden. Okay. That's, that's what the definition is. All right. It, it also implied virginity. And here's, here's one of the things that's interesting about this word. It always referred to an unmarried woman in the Old Testament always referred to an unmarried woman in the Old Testament. And it was never used of a non-virgin in the way that we think of the term virgin because virginity is an implied characteristic of this word, okay? So it's not the technical word for virgin, but, but the concept of virginity is implied. Now, here's where it gets, if that hasn't confused you yet, here's where it gets more confusing. The, the Hebrew word Bethula is the precise word for virgin in Hebrew. And this is the argument that the critics will make. Well, why didn't he use Bethula? If that's what he was trying to say, why didn't he use Bethula? Great question. 
It's a, it's a great question. But here's what's unique about Bethula. It could also refer to a widow or a divorced woman who was not a virgin. So even though it's a technical word for virgin, it could refer to women that weren't virgins. So, what, so you're left in a quandary. Which word do you choose uh, to make the point? And so obviously through the, the leading of the Spirit of God, he chose Alma, which has implied in it virginity. Okay, there's never a time Alma was used that it didn't imply virginity, but there is time that Bethula is used that it that implied a non-virgin. So just kind of an interesting uh, thing. So the question for us is, does it really mean virgin, the way that we understand? Or was Isaiah just saying that a young woman would give birth to a son? And this is what's so fascinating about this prophecy, and we'll kind of get into that in a second. But let's just build the case that this is exactly what he meant from the word of God. Genesis 3.15, we already mentioned this. Notice it's her seed. So this is tied directly back to Genesis 3.15. This is what he's talking about. It's not their seed. It's not man and woman's seed. It's her seed. So he's specifically talking about the, the woman. This is the earliest indication of God's plan here. Another argument, the Greek Old Testament, which was translated um, from Hebrew to Greek in about 200 BC, translated by scholars, uh, scholars of, of Jewish men, translated Alma here in Isaiah 7.14 with the Greek word parthenos, which is the Greek technical word for virgin. So all that tells us is this, how did the Jews understand the word? Did they understand it as just some young girl or did they understand it as speaking of a virgin birth? That's how they understood it, based on the word that they used to translate in the Greek. And then even finally in Matthew 1, an angel of the Lord says that the virgin birth of Christ was a direct fulfillment of this prophecy. So he, he predicts, he, the angel says, yeah, this is what we're talking about in Isaiah 7, 14, okay? So, so I think we can be very confident um, that this is exactly what the Lord is speaking of. This is exactly what the scriptures are predicting Here's where it's interesting because what you have with prophecy oftentimes in the Old Testament, this is a great example of one, is you've got a a near fulfillment. In other words, you've got a fulfillment that people can see. And then that is supposed to and designed to give you a guarantee of what's going to happen with the far fulfillment. In other words, this prophecy had a near and a far fulfillment. Why do I I say that? Well, go back to Isaiah 7.14. And typically, I don't try to make a, a, as big a deal about definite articles that I'm about to make, but it does help us, I think, in our understanding. Isaiah 7.14 again says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, notice that next word, the virgin shall conceive. Not a virgin shall conceive, the virgin, virgin shall conceive. And so because this word is articulated, what it seems to be, because again, this is a sign for Ahaz, right? This is something that Ahaz is going to see as well in his lifetime. What is he going to see? Well, I believe that Isaiah was referring to a young woman, unmarried, who was present at the time and was going to conceive and give birth. That would be an incredible prophecy. This girl's not married, but she's going to give birth. You're going to be able to see it. And, and, and as the prophecy goes on to say, let's go to verse 15, curds and honey he shall eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and and, and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. In other words, in the lifetime of the toddlerhood of this child, you're gonna see 
You're going to see that I'm with you, Ahaz. You're going to see that I'm going to protect you. This is the prophecy and, and, and what I believe he's referring to when he says the virgin shall conceive. That's the near fulfillment. This would have been a sign to Ahaz also foretelling the future. But then that long fulfillment, that far fulfillment, it's got a dual aspect to it. And we see that fulfilled literally in the life of Jesus Christ. And this is what the angel in Matthew 1 identifies. We see that, they, that, he, uh, they, that this virgin-born child should be named Emmanuel, literally interpreted meaning God with us. And this was a sign to Ahaz. God's going to be with you, Ahaz. He's going to protect you. But we also see that it was a sign to the Jews of Jesus' day, subsequently to us, that, that God himself had condescended in human form to enter our race, to solve the problem of sin, and at that point in time, to offer the kingdom to Israel. This is all in, encapsulated in this prophecy. And so again, this is more additional information to fill in Genesis 3.15, to fill in more details of what's this gonna look like. Now, flip a page over in Isaiah to Isaiah 9, verse six. We'll look at this second prophecy this morning. Where we, whereas we were looking at a unique birth in Isaiah 7.14, we wanna look at the unique person that's found in Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. And to do that, let's provide some context here. Again, uh, around 700 BC, plus or minus, uh, Isaiah is going to give the Jewish people a prophecy concerning the future. In contrast to Ahaz and some of the other unfaithful kings that Judah had seen, Isaiah is going is to is prophesy that God is going to promise to raise up a faithful leader, uh, a hero, somebody they can be proud of. And he's going to describe this king for us in verses six and seven. And, and here's what's ironic about it. The prophecy centers on a child, a son upon whom the government would rest. And then he, he gives the identity, he, he gives some identifying character markers of who this child is going to be, who this son is going to be. And we read this verse at Christmas all the time, but, but I just want you to I just want you to imagine, let me just put it in our perspective. If we found out today that, that China or Russia or maybe a conglomeration of the two were planning an invasion of the United States, and it looked, it looked pretty bad. Let's say that they had figured out a way to disable our, our nuclear capabilities. They, uh, you know, they, had, they had come in and done cyber warfare, and our, our planes didn't work, and we were just sitting ducks. We were really worried. And President Trump got on and said, don't worry about it. A child is going to be born and he's going to deliver us. We would be like, can January you know, 20th come quick enough? We're like, yeah, this guy's crazy, you know? And, and we'd, be, we'd be really worried that he had lost his mind. This is exactly the message that Isaiah gave to the nation, okay? They're, they're worried. They're, they're worried about annihilation. They're, they're worried about being taken out. He's like, for unto us a child is born. And like, on what planet is that good news <laughs> against an army? What, on what planet is that good news to protect uh, against the advances of other nations? And yet this is the prophecy that Isaiah gives. Let's read it. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of, uh, not Davy, David, 
That's what I call him. No, I'm just kidding. That's a typo. (laughs) The throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So this child's going to be born. What does that remind you of? Oh, it should remind us of Genesis 3.15, right? It goes, keeps going back. This is God filling in more details, but it emphasizes the humanity of this child. He's going to be born just like everybody else was born through natural birthing methods, okay? He's going to be born, this child. In fact, the the word child occurs first in the Hebrew, and so the, the weight, the emphasis is upon this, the, the fact that he, he is going to be a naturally born child. Pretty incredible. Again, this is God's solution for government. And what does it tie? Well, directly back to Genesis 3.15, it ties into what we see in Isaiah 7.14, the unique virgin-born seed of the woman. But then he throws in a wrinkle. Okay, that makes sense so far. The, the child is born. But then he says, a son is given. To, to be given means he has to already exist, right? It, so, so his birth is not his beginning. His, his origin is sometime before that. And obviously, we know through progressive revelation that, that he has no beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. This is Jesus Christ. And so it emphasizes now the deity of the son. Not, it, it doesn't say a son was born, right? That, that would be good news in those days. You're, a son will be born. Oh, hallelujah, my family name goes on. That was a big deal to people. It doesn't say a son is born. It says a child is born, a son is given. And and that combination is found in the same person. This is what Isaiah is is saying. And again, this also ties back to Genesis 3.15, one human parent. It also ties to David as this natural lineage. We're gonna see in verse seven because he's gonna have a kingdom. He's gonna reign on a throne. It's gonna tie it to the Davidic covenant. God is, again, putting all these things together for us. And we see that the government will be upon his shoulder. And this is referring to the millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign on earth that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. And it's just, again, as I made a comment, it's like, it's just an odd thing to talk this way about a child. You know, yeah, we're going we're gonna to rest our government on this little baby's shoulder. That'd just be weird, right? It'd just be, just, it's just an odd statement. He could have just said, you know, God's going to come to us, right? He said Emmanuel in Isaiah seven fourteen. That would make more sense. But you see what he's emphasizing here. Isaiah gives more specifics here. Why? Because I believe he's filling in the details of Genesis three fifteen. This is what it's going to look like. This is what you're looking for. And now we've heard a little bit about his origins. Now we're going to hear about what he's like. These are some of the characteristics. His name will be called. Interesting. Now these aren't just nicknames. You know, we, we tend to think in terms of nicknames. Oh yeah, that's Bubba. You know, that's Joe. That's, you know, whatever. That's Bob. Uh, you know, we, we think of all these, these nicknames. This is, these aren't nicknames. These are actually who he is and what he has done. And that's typically how the Bible uses uh, the word name. In fact, it's very common in Hebrew speech. This phrase is used to describe or represent the character of the child. In other words, who will he be? Who is he in essence? This, this child that Isaiah is speaking of. And this is when he goes, you know, handles Messiah on him. You know, handles Messiah. This is one of those great songs that completes it. Actually, that was based on Isaiah, not the other way around. But he, he says, he's a wonderful counselor. 
I love that phrase. I, I used to always think in terms of, oh, he, he's going to counsel me and tell me what to do. But it's interesting. When you, when you put those two together, it's probably better translated extraordinary strategy, strategist, uh, a planner of amazing or miraculous things. It has more of an idea on, on strategy, planning, devising. And, and, you know, when you're in trouble, wouldn't you want a, a king who could get you out of trouble? <laughs> A king who said, you know what? The enemy's going to come this way, but we're going to go this way. And we're going to, don't worry about it. I got this. Don't you love when somebody's like, hey, don't worry about it. I got it. I've seen this before. <laughs> I know it. I, I can, they've got bad poker faces. I know what's going on. I'm going to get them. Extraordinary strategist. That's who this child would be. Again, referring to the king's ability to devise military strategy. He calls him mighty God. The word mighty pertained to being strong in terms of having political or military force. And you know, whereas the extraordinary strategist could devise a plan, the mighty God can execute it. And it's the same guy. You know, it's, it's great. You know, I was watching some football games on Thanksgiving. I'm not going to mention any teams because I'm just tired of mentioning my team. But there were some extraordinary strategists, but not too much of an execution on some of the things that these football teams, you'll see football teams, they've got the greatest plays written up. They, they draw it up and they go out and practice that this is going to work on Sunday. And then they run the play and they can't execute. But they got, the, they got this great strategy. I mean, it looks great on paper. And what Isaiah is saying here is not only does this child, this son, and not only is he extraordinary in his strategy, but he can do it. He can execute it because he's mighty God. Everlasting Father. Interesting phrase because it's caused some problems over the year with our idea of the Trinity. How could the Son be the Father, right? We, we oftentimes will be like, ooh, I don't know what to do with that. Well, what's really interesting about this phrase is, is it could also, and it's probably better understood and translated if we translate it Father of Eternity. And among the Jews, the, the word means, uh, the word Father means originator, the one who, who is the source of eternity. That's probably a better way to understand that. And, and that makes sense. What the son is given, he's, he's always is existed. He's the originator of eternity. And, and he's the, the father of eternity in that sense. And so it's more of an idiom describing the, the Messiah's relationship to time. In other words, he's outside of time. He's, he does have a birth, but he existed before that. And then we see a couple of closing phrases, Prince of Peace, Again, just one who establishes a safe socioeconomic development um, for the nation. That would have been so important to Ahaz, and, and he establishes it through military strength. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can usher in and maintain world peace. And this is something we've got to be reminded of in our own political whatever, ramblings that we, we go through in this country. And just, just remember, again, to set our mind on things Above And then finally, just one last comment, verse 7. Again, just, just noticing this connection to prophecy, this, 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 this detail that's given to point us back and connect these things together. Verse 7 says this, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David. And that is, that is key because now he's tying this son, this child to the Davidic covenant, which again ties it back 
to uh, not only 2 Samuel 7, but back to Abraham, because the Davidic covenant is just an expansion on one of the the promises in the Abrahamic covenant, which then ties it back to Genesis 3.15. I mean, all of these things coming together, tying together as a perfect knot. And also notice this, the very last phrase in verse 7, the zeal of the host, zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Not man, not groups of men, not Israel, not the church. God is going to perform it. You know, and I think that's a good place to close because that's the good news of biblical prophecy. That's, that's the good news of biblical prophecy. God himself ensures that his predictions will come to pass. And see, this is why we remember the birth of Jesus Christ this time of year. This is something that was unique and special, not only because of who he is, but be, because of the fact that you can trace the promises and the prophecies of God all the way back to the Garden of Eden, saying that he was going to do this and accomplish this. And you know, what's, what's incredible about that is we see oftentimes prophecy made at the time that was predicting the future, but now the future to us is in the past. In other words, we, we've seen these predicted prophecies. We've seen it come to pass because it's happened um, in our past. So we've actually seen it. But you know, the design of fulfilled prophecy is to get into our thinking and say, what else is God promising to me? What else is God promising for my future? And you know, one of, the, one of the great things that God is promising to those who will simply put their faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work for them, he promises eternal life. He promises forgiveness of sins. He promises a righteousness equal to his righteousness. And based on the, all the fulfilled prophecy that is now in our past, that's why we can trust him for our future. If he says something the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. And we can trust in his promises, even though we haven't seen maybe the, the end of those yet. And part of the reason is we look at his, his track record, right? In terms of the fulfilled prophecies that he's fulfilled. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the accuracy of it. I thank you that we can trace these things in, in what you've revealed to us and just see this, this pattern and this, this line that you've drawn for us, that you've communicated to us. And Lord, we're just so grateful that you took great care and great effort, went through great pain to put all of this together in such a perfect way. Thank you for just the clarity of your word in those areas. Lord, I just, I pray for anybody that's listening, either in the house or on live stream, Lord, if they've never put their faith in you and you alone, Lord, that they would just in the, in the quiet moment of their hearts and their seat, that they would just be persuaded that Jesus died for their sins personally, that he was their substitute and that he rose again, thereby receiving the promise of eternal life, forgiveness of sins. We thank you and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.